Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Karen Bauer, Research Associate in Quranic Studies at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London, about her exciting new book, Gender Hierarchy in the Quran, Medieval Interpretations, Modern Responses, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. In Gender Hierarchy in the Quran, Dr. Bauer tackles one of the foremost hot-button questions of the day. What is the role of gender in the Quran? Dr. Bauer's adroit study will leave the reader informed, but perhaps also disrupted, given the vast spectrum of competing, sometimes contradictory, interpretive paradigms that she explores. A key strength of the text, moreover, is that in addition to its meticulous investigation of primary texts from medieval and modern traditions of Quranic exegesis, Dr. Bauer also conducts numerous in-person interviews with prominent scholars across the Muslim world including Iran and Syria. Thus, from a literary perspective, the text presents the reader with a compelling style seldom found in Quranic studies publications, seamlessly weaving together close textual analysis and ethnographic fieldwork. Notably, Bauer also gives attention to Sunni as well as Shi'i perspectives on her study, thus offering provocative comparison and breadth of analysis. Given the careful scholarship of the book, Combined with its equally careful presentation, Bauer's masterful monograph will almost certainly become standard reading for anyone interested in questions related to the Qur'an and gender. It will also interest scholars more broadly in the fields of Qur'anic studies, gender studies, law, political science, and the history of Islamic thought. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Karen Bauer. Hello, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us in New Books in Islamic Studies today. Thank you very much for having me. So before we get started about the content of the book, uh, it's our tradition to ask authors a little bit about their background. So could you tell us how you got interested in Islamic studies and the book project in particular, and whether there are any influential mentors or books that shaped your views as a scholar? Yeah, um, I got in interested in Islamic studies because I was interested in the modern Middle East and I became interested in that um, when I was an English teacher in Jordan after my BA. So unlike most people in the field, I didn't study this at all as an undergraduate and I came in just because of spending time in the Middle East and from the Middle East, I after I was an English teacher, I went back to the U.S., and I got into a master's program at the University of Arizona. And from there, I got into the PhD program at Princeton. And it was at Princeton where I met Michael Cook and Patricia Crona. And um, so while I started out as a modernist, once I started taking classes with them, I recognized how amazing and rich the medieval history was. And so that led me to this project where I wanted to do a project that was really relevant um, to people's lives. I wanted to do something that spanned medieval to modern and where you could see um, how medieval influences did or didn't um, pan out in the modern world. And um, so that led me to this, this, this book project in particular. Yeah. Well, great. And I look forward to hearing more about it. So, 
since there's a number of books that have come out just in the past uh, year or so on the topic of the Quran and gender, could you say a little bit about where you see your book fitting in and this growing trend in books on related topics? Absolutely. Um, I think that there's a really important trend right now in um, Islamic studies, which is that there are a, a number, a growing number of work, works written by Muslim feminists. And um, as those works are often focused in one way or another on the author's own theological interests or a quest for understanding of their own tradition or understanding their own personal experience or a quest to legitimize their interpretation of the Quran. Now, I think that much of this work is immensely exciting and important. And to be honest, some of it could be the subject of study in and of itself. But because I'm not a Muslim, my interest is really different. I think in this project in particular, I had a broad interest in how an intellectual tradition works, which in this case is based on gender, but which transcends questions of gender. So since the term gender figures into the title of the book, and since it's a hotly contested and discussed term in any number of academic fields, could you say a little bit about what you understand and intend by that term, as well as how the various figures that you study understand that term? Right. Well, it is it is a very debated and contested topic, that's for sure. And um, I think that because I'm looking at the Quranic concept of gender and then medieval Muslim interpretations and then the interpretations of the ulama who are a certain group of scholars who base their legitimacy on the medieval tradition. I think that the the concepts of gender in the book and the concept of what I mean by gender is um, uh, is not as broad on the spectrum as it could be otherwise. Um, so I what I mean is maleness and femaleness and um, the the hierarchy between the male and the female, essentially. But um, but I do think that what my book delves into without me talking about it too much in the book is really what it means to be male or female, what this concept actually is in the Quran and especially in interpretation, like what what constitutes a male sorts of behavior or what constitutes female sorts of behavior and what constitutes those roles in a family or in the state or according to the state in, in society or even in creation. And I found that really, really interesting how, how maleness and femaleness were constructed through time. Right. And si since many of the figures you look at uh, are thinking through these concepts and come up with similar as well as different conclusions, could you tell us how did you decide which figures to study both in the medieval period and the modern period, both textually and in your field work? Right. Um, so the figures in the medieval period, I tried to go for a range of um, different interpretative uh, traditions, but at the same time hitting some of the most major figures. I mean, other books that have gone through time have hit 
say the big six um, or like, you know, Tabari, Ibn Kathir, Fakhreddin, Razi, you know, there, there are about six or, or so of them um, or, or maybe eight or ten. And what I tried to do is incorporate their views, but also get a sense of the wider picture. So you even get some people from outside of the tafsir tradition to give it a little bit more of a sense of, you know, what is the wider discourse that's going on in the medieval period. Um, in the modern period, um, I think that it was, I was certainly trying to choose prominent scholars, but I was also really open to being introduced to more people based on recommendations, local recommendations. So when I got to Iran, um, the the Center for Human Rights Studies and the Department of Quranic Studies at Mufid University, they collaborated to come up with a list for me, and um, and they okayed it with me, and I and I said, yeah, that that looks great, and so that that was, um, you know, that was they were influential in coming up with my list of which prominent scholars I could and should interview and so you know some of it was my own design and some of it was chance some of the medieval books were just things I found in the the shelves in Princeton Library and Firestone Library you know and so that that's kind of you know there's always an element of chance and an element of design and all of this sure and so since you you mentioned Iran in particular one of the things I really appreciate about this book and I think readers will as well is that it doesn't have a particular Sunni-centric focus. You you give a lot of attention to Shi interpretations as well as Sunni interpretations. So yeah. were, were there any kind of, uh, to the extent that you can generalize, key trends in the way that Sunni methodologies worked mm-hmm. as opposed to Shi methodologies? It's a really, really interesting question, and it was very much a part of my program. What I really wanted to do was include both of those major traditions rather than I feel like, um, yeah, some work does very much focus on the one. And yet why? I mean, you could you could be finding out so much about the the areas of confluence and dissonance between them. And so that's what I tried to do. Um, having said that, it was really interesting to me. I thought that the conservative views in particular were very similar among Sunnis and Shi'is. But their methods of talking about those views were very different. And so the conservative Sunni and Shi'i view of the role of women, for instance, and men was very similar, that the man should be the breadwinner, the, um, the woman um, uh, uh, has a certain amount of freedom um, to do what she wants, but is under the authority ultimately of her husband. And um, this echoes as well, like conservative Christian discourses in the states um, where I'm from. Um, it 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 echoes a lot. There's a there's a kind of broad conservative um, ideal of manhood and womanhood that you know even taken out of the context of the Quran and Islamic studies, you can see you know broadly reflected there. Um, but having said that, the methodologies of how did they get there? That that was very different because I think that um, in the Shi um, case, both conservatives and reformists had um, kind of a very strong tradition of being able to reject hadiths, and whereas in the Sunni case, um, 
most of the ulama who I spoke to or read um, really were trying to work with hadiths. So they were trying to explain or justify them in a certain way, whereas Shi'is might be more likely to reject them, even conservatives. So what what would be the case for that? I think a lot of people could make guesses about why Shi'is might reject particular hadiths, but... Were there, were there particular reasons that you, you found among the people that you talked to and the sources that you looked at? Right. Well, the, the two main reasons that they would give me for being able to reject a hadith was um, the weak chain of transmission or um, that it didn't make sense that the uncle could reject it, that your mind could reject this hadith. And, um, and I found this very, very interesting. So, of course, conservatives would be more likely to judge a hadith on the basis of the chain of transmission, but certainly reformists did that as well. And equally, reformists would be more likely to say, well, we can't accept this hadith because it couldn't have been that way. And yet some conservatives did that as well. Um, Now, um, why the subject matter of some hadiths would have been rejected and why she could reject hadiths. Um, that's that's a whole other story. I mean, it's a it's a big question. The first case where I that I came across was um, in the tafsir of Tabatabai, where he was saying that he that he rejected hadiths uh, about the creation of Eve, and um, and so there was certainly a textual precedent for people rejecting hadiths. In that in that way, um, but um, I would argue that the reason that these hadiths had to be rejected was because their substance was no longer palatable to to the modern sensibilities. So, for instance, saying that Eve is inferior to Adam or those kinds of things, or um, that that's just not palatable anymore. And and um, people believe now that even Adam. Or equal as human beings, and so so it's it's easier to explain away or to reject those hadiths. Mm-hmm. And so, also, you've used the terms conservative and reformist, and you talk yes. about this a little bit in the text. And you mentioned that you don't like the terms traditionalist and modernist. So, could you say a little bit about how these terms differ and what the pros and cons are for using them? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, um, well, traditionalist and modernist, and I mean, those were terms used by Ziba Mir Hosseini, and I've had a conversation with her since then about about those terms, and she says she doesn't even use them anymore. And the reason being that traditionalist, of course, implies that those people are the ones who are a part of the tradition, and modernist implies that those ones are the ones who are modern. And I think that we can all recognize that I mean, we're talking about the ulama, so they're, all of them are seeking to be a part of the tradition in different ways, and yet all of them are modern in different ways as well. I mean, that's been well recognized among scholars for a long time. I'm certainly not the one, the first one to say something like that. Um, so I chose conservative and reformist because um, I thought that that best reflected kind of their stances on um, social issues, basically because it comes down to some of these things like um, uh, whether women can testify equally in court. Um, it's kind of a social issue. And so 
a conservative would be more likely to, to try to follow a medieval ruling and a reformist would be more likely to try to reform that medieval ruling. But they're both still relating to tradition and they're both still um, doing that in a modern way. Yeah, and I, I found the discussion of the terms helpful because of the, the tension that you describe is that everyone wants to belong to the tradition. So how we talk about them can shape the way that we, we think about the discourse. Yeah. So you do you talk about some interviews in the book. And before we get to that, I think one of the real strengths is that you have countless numbers of like long ex- excerpts from text that you translate. And so it's very clear that you're engaging closely with the te- textual sources. And I think some, something you do in the book, which, you know, m- one might not expect in a, a text heavy book like this is you you contrast it with the interviews that you do with your field work. So could you tell us a little bit about how you envisioned the field work and interviewing people? And were there any surprises that you encountered when you got around to actually doing it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I came up with the idea, it was the idea for my dissertation. And, um, and I said, I wanted to do these subjects. And I said in my um, dissertation defense or whatever, which um, they said was the shortest defense that they did. not not the defense of the dissertation per se the defense of my proposal they said was the shortest one they'd ever had to do it was just a very clear and straightforward project I'm just going to look at Tupsia and I said as a kind of throwaway comment oh and I might go to the Middle East and actually talk to some people because I don't really think the whole tradition is represented in Tupsia. Mm-hmm. And I said, but of course I couldn't include that as a part of my research. I haven't been trained to do that kind of thing. I'm not an anthropologist. And Michael Cook said, well, why not? Why not include it? And I said, well, do you think I could include it if I did go over there? And he said, well, yes, of course you could. And so I thought, oh, well, that's a new way of thinking about that. Now, that was years and years ago now. But I always had it in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And so I traveled to Syria during while I was writing my PhD to do interviews. And that, that was an amazing, amazing experience. And what I found the most surprising when I was there is that the ulama themselves, their picture of themselves was different from my picture of what they would be like. They, for instance, readily admitted that there were conflicts in the tradition, that there were differences of opinion, that they had differences of opinion with others. One um, one uh, Sufi sheikh in Aleppo, I didn't even get to include his stuff in my book, but he made sure that I interviewed um, like five different people in Aleppo so that I would get a range of opinions, including a woman's opinion, because he didn't want me to think that his view was the only view. I mean, this kind of from and even though his view was pretty conservative, it that that really, really surprised me because my image of what they would be like was so different from their self image. And I thought that's got that's something I've got to try to get across in the book. And then um, I don't know when I went to Iran. I mean, it was just amazing how um, how accepting people were as well of me doing my research how um, really very important people read my questions and, you know, really answered them seriously. It, it was, I mean, it was just an absolutely, the interviews were an amazing experience. And so 
I mean, in truth, I could have written a separate book just about interviews, even just about the Syria interviews, which are barely represented in my book, um, and just about the Iran interviews. But I really had the vision of this as being one project where you could get a sense of the inter the interpretive possibilities both in the medieval and the modern period. And I knew for sure that the textual tradition wasn't representing that, that full spectrum. And I think the interviews are also great because they give us a chance to get inside the author's head a little bit and understand your personality and where you're coming from, as well as the figures that you look at. They, they don't come across at all as, you know, dry. Uh, not that texts are always dry, but that might be the presumption. But you very much get a sense of what these people might be like. So yeah. what, one of, you have your book, it's separated into three parts, testimony, creation, and marriage. And because marriage is a particularly hot topic, are there any are there any conversations you had with the scholars you interviewed on this area in particular that you'd like to recount for us? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, marriage, the marriage one. Oh, I mean, there were just oh, there are so many. Um, Gosh, I haven't reviewed my interview notes in a while either. But, so um, I, I had I had in mind things to do is, with housework or the so-called wife-beating verse, and I remember some particularly uh, not necessarily heated, but sens- sensitive, controversial discussions you had over marital discipline and oh authority and things like this. Are, oh my god, there was d- that one. It was just so painful. I was I was in um the you know, because of course often the ulama they, they invite you into their home, you know. And so um so I was in the home of this uh this um I think that he's a Hajjat al Islam well well uh, and um, I think, um, and and I, we'd gotten there, and he was a really prominent teacher in the house. And his, I think it was his niece was there, um, along with her fiance, because her fiance was a member of the Quranic studies um, department at Mufid University. And he um, uh, had accompanied me on a number of interviews. He was fantastic. I mean, everybody at Mufid was amazing. And so, I mean, really, you know, as time went on, because in the beginning, somebody would have said to me, you know, okay, well, this is the best way to, you know, to discipline a wife is to just, you know, if she's being recalcitrant, sometimes we don't like to do it, but sometimes we have to, and this and that, and you know, as time went on, I just got less and less and less patient with this, which I'm sure comes through in my book. And it certainly came through in my interviews because it's impossible for me to hide anything that's going on. You, you see it written all over my face and hear it in my tone of voice. And, um, and so I just got less and less and less patient and I just started questioning more and more and more and saying things like, but you honestly believe that this is the best way to bring a recalcitrant wife if 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 your wife isn't does not feel like having sex with you, do you really think that beating her is the way to get her to do that? <laughs> and so I started questioning this venerable man in this way, and oh my goodness, the giggles around the table, and I mean, the, this couple who obviously they were engaged, but you know not yet married. I mean, they were 
beach red and like they, they were looking down and, and everybody was so tense and it was so, oh, oh, dear me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a moment indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the strength of the book because you communicate the sort of this human element to having conversations about these sensitive topics. And on that note, I wonder, and you give a good sense of how the modern figures that you engage are are self-aware about how historical context shapes things, as you've already mentioned to an extent about Hadith. So how, given this sort of self-conscious reflection about how you engaged with your interviewees, has this affected how you look at medieval texts? Like, are you able to get more distance from these things that strike you as problematic because they're old? I mean, I, it, I mean, it absolutely, the interviews absolutely shaped how I saw the medieval text. And I don't want to be one of those people who kind of says, well, it's like this now, so it was always like that. But honestly, when I was in Syria and I sat in on a lesson. And of course, it was a totally modern thing. I mean, it was a woman answering, giving her own tafsir of of some verses in, in, in the basement of a mosque for other women. And they were, it was a dialectic. They were, they were asking questions and she was answering. But I mean, but as I sat in, I thought, actually, this is how these texts were conveyed. And you know, the more you know about the medieval period, of course, the more you realize the truth of that, because, you know, people did not read to the to the extent that they do now. Books were not, I mean, books were ex- incredibly expensive. And so people didn't have books unless they were scholars. And so when you think about, like, how were these texts conveyed, or you read like the scholar Ibn Jubair and his travels, and he goes to the mosque and he and there's question and answer sessions and tafsir that they do. And you think, this is how it happened. This is what really happened. And this is how, you know, a, a dry text that might have been written between and a conversation between the ulama, but this is how it would get filtered down into the populace. So I don't know if that's what you were asking, but, but I mean, it really made me see the medieval texts in a different way, but also the whole medieval tradition or the whole textual tradition and its function in a very different way, because I could see that there must have always been an oral component to these written texts and that, that that component could contain anything that might not even be in those texts that might be nowhere represented in those texts. And so that to me was just really, really fascinating. And I think that as time goes on, I'll probably try more and more to try to get at, what's not in the, the text as they're written, can, can we uncover any more about, you know, the, the daily life or re- lived reality? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly, I was getting, getting at something along those lines. Uh, I mean, especially because, you know, to find a, a book like yours where it has so much in-person interview as well as textual study, it provides this sort of uh, contrapuntal character that, uh, at least I'm not personally familiar with too much in like university press publications. Yeah, I tried to do something really different. That is true. I don't think it's been done, to my knowledge, in, to that extent in the field of Quranic studies, to my, to my knowledge, not to that extent, because um, 
once I started going on that theme of the interviews, I just realized this is something like I've got a resource here. You know, most people who are doing interviews are anthropologists, not textual studies people. And then most textual studies people would, would, as me in the beginning, never consider really incorporating interviews because we study text. So I realized that I had, that by having done both of those things, I realized it was really like, like um, a real, a really special opportunity for me to kind of explore uh, the relationship between the oral tradition and the textual tradition. I hope I convey, I managed to convey some of it in the book because um, I can't tell you how much I learned. Really, it was just an amazing experience writing the book actually. Yeah. I mean, I I would say conveying some of it is an understatement and it's, you know, it's very well meticulously footnoted and clear. So I personally, that was finding that, uh, wasn't a problem for me. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about how, how you put the book together and how you conceived of ordering testimony, creation and marriage. But first I'd be, I'd be curious um, to read a passage uh, from the book from Samar Kandi and to ask you how characteristic this is of the, the vast array of medieval views on gender that you read. So this is from page 184 in the book. It's a short paragraph. So he says, that It is said that men are superior in rationality, al-aqal, and management, a tadbir, and God put them in charge of women because they have superior rationality to women. It is also said that men have strength in their selves and their natures, which women don't have, because men's natures are dominated by heat and dryness, and in that there is strength and power, whereas women's natures are dominated by moisture and coldness, which means softness and weakness, and that is why men have been given the right to be in charge of women. So how how characteristic is this kind of thinking in the texts that you looked at? Yeah, it's characteristic. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, like men are superior um, physically. I mean, that, that, as I mentioned in the book, I think, I mean, I didn't go into this. I didn't, uh, frankly, I didn't research it that well. But the, the idea of the humors, I mean, of course, that's Greek, right? And, and so that's been around for a long time before the, the Muslim scholars picked it up. But, um, and I don't know to what extent the Greeks use that to justify women's inferior place in society, I don't really know, to be honest, because I haven't actually looked into it. It would be an interesting research subject if anyone out there is listening to this and speaks Greek. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. really doubtful. I, but, um, but, um, well, we do get, we have a wide audience on new books in Islamic studies, so I would say it's within the realm of possibility, certainly. Right. Contact me if you do that research. I want to know. I really want to know. But um, but um, like so that's that's kind of I think that and that points to something else that I should say right now, which is that yes, these views are absolutely widespread, but they're not certainly not unique to Muslim authors. They're just widespread views. I mean, the the ideas of gender, those ideas of men being superior. I think that that's just widespread medieval view. And um, as Patricia Cronin once acidly remarked on one of my drafts, men still think this way about women. What else is new or something like that? <laughs> um, but um, but uh, uh, yes, I think that um, 
I think, you know, that, uh, that this idea is that, you know, men's minors, minds are superior in certain ways, men's bodies are superior in certain ways, and therefore men have the, the duty and the responsibility to administer or manage women or to discipline them. Absolutely widespread, yeah. on, on, on the note of what you mentioned that Patricia Krona had said in a somewhat humorous manner, do you, do you think that Islamic studies scholars working on gender face a heightened sensitivity in terms of engaging texts? Like in the, the idea that people are going to read it and it's going to converse or um, confirm their worst Islamophobic fears. Do, do you think that Islamic studies scholars face a kind of sensitivity that other other scholars of traditions don't necessarily face because their audience doesn't have the same kind of widespread negative expectations? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And, and I think it probably is true. And I think that that's why the, the um, especially the feminist trend that I, that I noted earlier, like, which is a much more activist trend. Like, I mean, I don't see myself as an activist primarily, right? But some people who are writing right now really do see themselves in that way. And that's what they want to be doing. And I think that that's actually su- such an important trend for our field right now as well in that way. Because I think that especially they can answer a lot of those those things. And and I do think that, that it is unfortunate. But, but uh, I mean, Islamic studies has a lot... I mean, it, we have a greater burden in our field, I think, at this moment because of all of the um, baggage that 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 the field has right now at this moment in time with with the kind of um, ISIS or ISIL pro- propaganda and all these jihadis and all of, you know that that sort of thing. Plus, you know, just the discriminatory laws that you find in a lot of Muslim majority countries that um, you know that the lawmakers. Uh, would argue have a basis in the medieval tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think g- given that challenge, your, your book offers uh, a productive response, just given the vast array of interpretations you look at and the different types of methodologies that people are thinking about. And so that leads me to my next question, which is that in each of the three main sections in the book, you have attention to medieval thought and modern thought. So could you say a little bit about how you chose these three categories of testimony, creation, and marriage? Yeah, um, I wanted to. I wanted to um, explore the public, the private, and the nature of humanity. Right. So, I mean, it didn't have to be testimony. I mean, I guess it could have been inheritance, but you see, testimony is definitely. A public thing, really, and the, the the distinction has been drawn in the past in gender studies, in Islamic gender studies, between the public and the private realm, saying that, um, for instance, um, women are disadvantaged in the public realm, but not necessarily in the private realm of testimony and these kinds of arguments. But I I kind of thought, well, actually, my suspicion was that. The ideas of gender would run through the 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 whole gamut of you know the the first creation to the private realm of marriage to the public realm, and then indeed actually 
I I also think that the, that thinking of marriage as private is maybe a misconception on my part in the beginning of my research because it's not really that private, is it? I mean, you know, you've got you've got the potential of other um, actors involved in a dispute. You've got um, Quran twenty um, four uh, four thirty five that talks about the arbiters on his side and her side. Um, and you know, in mo- some modern interpretations, you've got the question of whether the state should intervene if a husband hits his wife too hard. Should the state intervene? And the answer is often yes, that she could get a divorce through the state if he hits her too hard. So I mean, this is uh, so it's not really that private anymore. Marriage, um, in the same way as as I think I conceived of it in the beginning, but that that was my rationale between behind including those different those different sections. So one thing, another helpful thing that you do in the book is you talk about the historical context of the various authors that you're looking at. And so from the research that you did, what, what kinds of clear or subtle connections do you see between how people are reading the Quran and how they're reading it in light of their social situations, whether they're, they're conscious or unconscious of this uh, way of reading. Well, I think it's really interesting because the ulama are certainly far more conscious of it than I expected them to be. This was another thing that definitely I wanted to convey, and I hope I did a little bit at least, was that that you know, whereas I might have expected me as an academic and a non-Muslim academic coming from um, you know from a really, you know, great graduates program to like um, to have a different perspective on that than the ulama themselves. But in fact, I found that we had a lot of shared perspective in a lot of cases about the about um, what uh, what the effect of the historical context could be, and in the cases where where it seemed that we had the least in common, there could have been other issues, like some of these interviews were taking place in Persian, not in Arabic, like the ones with the Grand Ayatollahs were taking place in Arabic, and then I could do the interview myself in Arabic. But some of the interviews in Persian, I had to have a translator. So maybe some of the nuance of what they were saying didn't come across to me. I'm not, you know, there, there could be other issues. Because where I could directly speak to the ulama in Arabic, you know, whether that was in Syria or in Iran, um, I really found that they had much more of a shared perspective with me than I ever expected. And that, you know, because I think I'm a textual scholar and they are textual scholars, right? That's what they do with their whole lives is read texts as well. And that's what I do with my life. And so we had this kind of common bond that I didn't really expect. I don't know if that was your question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is going to lead into something else, but it sounds like the whole experience surprised you on one level. Were there any particular examples of the logic or rationale that scholars used that really surprised you or or took you aback in terms of conclusions that they came to around particular verses in the Quran? Definitely when um, one of the professors at Mofid University, the, he's the dean of the law school, I believe, um, 
Dr. Formania, when he said, yes, our reason can cause us to, to um, I'm paraphrasing, to question, you know, the what has been reported as the words of the prophet. And then he said, actually, reason is our prophet. Mm. That, I couldn't believe it. I said, what? <laughs> you know, I, I think that I, I, I was really, really, really surprised that um, there's a certain strain in within Shiism where reason or akal, your mind, can actually be used as an independent source for um, the law rather than as a source, as a way of interpreting the law. Now, everybody admits they almost everybody, not everybody, but it, there, a lot of people would admit that you would use your reason to interpret the law. Some people would say you don't use reason, right, at all. Okay. A lot of people might say that, well, yeah, of course you can use your mind to interpret the law. But there's this, there's this other little branch where they say, actually, you can use your mind as an independent source. And I, I was very surprised by that. Although, of course, Rob Gleave has written about it, which I found out after I'd been, I only read some of his work later on key law. So it's not as if it's something absolutely new, but, but, um, but I was surprised by it when I was there. So you are mostly surveying men in your study, but you also give attention to women, especially in the modern period, which in part is because women weren't writing as many things in the pre-modern period. So what, what types of trends did you see among the feminist thinkers that you looked at? That, and you using that word, so scholars that are either thinking of themselves as feminists or others are thinking of themselves as feminists. How are right. they... How are they wrestling with this text, which has such a, a, a prominent pre-modern interpretive tradition that doesn't, you know, look at contemporary feminism, you know, very, very highly? Right. It, yeah, because I think that, um, well, of course, most of the people that I interviewed who you could consider feminists or or who are looking for more equal roles for women, um, or more, I would call it flexibility of roles, like the ability for a couple to decide for themselves, rather than to just be that their roles are dictated. I would say that the roles being dictated is a very conservative trend, whereas the roles being flexible is a very reformist trend. And most of those reformists were men, okay? Um, the women who I interviewed tended to be very conservative, um, and and I quoted uh, Hillary Kalmbach on why that might be the case that that um, you know in order to maintain a position of prominence, I think um, her argument went that um, women reproduce the textual norms or the norms. Um, I think she didn't say textual norms. I pointed out that they were textual norms, but I think she said the societal norms. And um, but and and so. The women that I interviewed were not generally feminist at all. Um, at the same time, they were sometimes in roles that put them in a position of power. Now, that's not exclusively modern, of course, because women have been teachers of men. 
but throughout Islamic history. But I do think that the majority of women, like Suyuti, had a lot of women teachers. But that's because Suyuti was an expert in hadith, right? And so the majority of women teachers in the past would not have been fakihas or um, mufassaras. They would have been hadith scholars, muhaddathas. And, um, and so that's where you get the difference today. You get actually women who are a lot more advanced in, in these other fields. So they were not unheard of in the pre-modern period. I might have forgotten half of your question. Um, what, what else are you asking me about feminists? Um, what, what, what are some of the challenges that contemporary feminist thinkers have when they have this pre-modern tradition before them, which isn't necessarily friendly to their aims, but they also have the Qur'an, which it turns out is quite, quite flexible in the ways people have interpreted it over, over time for the last 1,400 years. Right, yeah. So, so for any reformist, I think, or anybody who wants to like reinterpret the sense of the, even the Qur'an, um, I think that, that, yeah, the biggest challenge, I think, if you're, if you're one of the ulama, is to, is to argue that your interpretation has legitimacy, okay? Whereas if you are seeking to reproduce older interpretations in whatever form, because the modern interpretations, as I and many others have pointed out, are not strictly medieval, right, for modern conservatism, they've, they've, they've certainly modified it a lot, the medieval rationales especially. So, um, but but they're rep- replicating maybe certain aspects of the medieval law. And that's very easy to justify because you just say, well, look, they said it then, and that's still the law. Of course, the way we, we justify it is different, but the law is the law kind of thing. But, but for reformists, the challenge is always going to be about... Um, proving that their interpretation is legitimate or has legitimacy. And so in that way, I found it really, really interesting the way that people like Mahdi um, Mahrizi went back to the, um, like the textual tradition and searched for historical examples of women um, doing different things or getting their full inheritance or testifying or whatever it was that... Um, you know, he would uh, actually search the hadiths for examples that he could use in order to justify his views. And um, that was very interesting. Or then he also took another um, type, another method that is also used in medieval texts, which is grammatical analysis. And so he took a grammatical analysis of the testimony verse and um, said that that proved that actually... uh, women could be counted equally to men in testimony. And that, to me, like, these kinds of... It, it was very interesting how you could work with a tradition or even within the methodology of a tradition and yet come up, come up with new interpretations. And spe- speaking of grammar, that, that's one thing that stru- stuck out to me on a few instances where the scholars were offering their interpretations about you know, maybe the some something that was an imperative, which one might presume is then prescriptive, but he's saying, no, it's it's an imperative, but it's just describing the norms of a time or something. It's not right. it's not something like, you have to do. Grand Ayatollah Sani, um, yeah, that's exactly his view. He says, 
that, for instance, Arujalu Kawamuna Alanipa, it's a description. It's not a prescription. It's a description of the way that it was at the time. At the time, men were in charge of women. But nowadays, we can rethink, and we, it, it's, it's a description of the way that things were and the way that, in fact, they have been until very, very recently. But it doesn't mean that it's a prescription for all of time. And that was really, I, I really enjoyed hearing that in interpretation. I That, that was a really, really um, fascinating interview for me. And, and I think that kind of discussion uh, help, helps the book as a, as a pedagogical tool because it helps the reader think about not just gender in the Quran, but how to think about traditions and texts and what it might mean to call something, you know, eternal or something like that. Because, yeah. you know, people are, are aware of their context and you can even relate the grammar to, you know, have these kinds of implications. So on, on that note, have you had opportunities to use this, your book or excerpts of it in a teaching context, whether in a classroom or leading workshops or seminars or anything like that? Yeah, I do all the time. I mean, whenever I teach, I kind of, well, I, I mean, I've taught the Quran for a number of years to Ismaili students at the Institute of Ismaili Studies. And, um, and there's always a section on gender. I always use excerpts from my book or excerpts from the text, at least. And, you know, we talk about how it's representative of interpretation. And we talk about the trends in feminist interpretation and that kind of thing. Um, but I did structure the book in the way that I did so that it could be used in teaching partially because I thought that um, if I'm going to write a book like this that's going to be so broad, right, that it's going to incorporate the earliest texts I can find as well as these interviews, it's going to be so broad that, you know, hopefully maybe some, maybe even undergraduates could really read it and get a sense of it, um, like, a sense of what it means to have a textual tradition. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons why I formed it into discrete um, sections of that, any of which, I mean, of course it's best read the whole thing, you know, one and the other, I think. I mean, but I kind of wrote them in a way that I thought you could actually exert each of these sections or even individual chapters, but but better as sections so that you get the medieval and the modern so that, so that, you know, not every class is going to have time to read this book. Probably, you know, maybe graduate seminars will, but I don't know how many undergraduate seminars could do that. But I thought that, you know, by, by putting into discrete textual and discrete sections that it would be very clear. Well, you know, we can read this section of the book and then they get, get kind of a sense of what's going on. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense, and I, I see that as a strength as well, particularly because you you do a good job of combining the theoretical uh, with lots of examples in each section. So I, I, I would imagine a student would be hard-pressed to find a lack of continuity between the practical application and the more abstract kind of theoretical discussions. Thank you for taking time with us today, Karen. And before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about future and current projects that you're working on, whether they're related to or different from your monograph. Yeah. Um, so um, there's one project that's directly related, which is um, the translation 
of some of the verses and interpretations that I use in this book and some others that I don't. It's going to be um, published at the Institute of Ismaili Studies um, in the series that where they do, it's called the anthology series, where they do anthologies of translations of the um, Quran and and texts, so specific verses and texts. And um, and so I hope that that would be good for classroom use primarily, and also for researchers if they want. Um, and um, then I'm going to do, I'm working on a conference right now um, and an article that will be on, um, that is in a way related to this project. It's on the more extremist elements, so um, the jihadis and their the way their propaganda that's aimed at women, um, and especially within the Middle East, um, because that's something that I have a feeling that the ulama are responding to that in some way. But I don't really even know very much about what the jihadis say, and so, so I'm um, I'm co-organizing a conference on um, the lure of jihad with Elizabeth Kendall here, um, and that'll be held in Oxford, and um, and then um, I'm thinking about in the longer term doing um, something like a historiography of Muslim women's history, so looking at how Muslim women are. Or how women are represented in different types of medieval texts, like, but specifically focusing on history, the Qur- and the Quran, histories and the Quran, and um, looking at how we can tell their history from those texts and um, why those texts write about women in the way that they do, and that would be, um, you know, keeping in mind the wider intellectual and textual traditions prior to and in concurrent with these these Muslim sources. So, um, so a bit more of it on the history angle, women's history. We'll see. Um, I'll let you know how that pans out as it's going along. Well, cool. It looks like you have no shortage of exciting projects to keep you busy in the near and distant future. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much again for chatting, and it's been a pleasure, and look forward to keeping in touch with your research. Oh, thank you so much, Elliot, and thanks for reading the book and for interviewing me. That was really nice. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Karen Bauer, Research Associate in Quranic Studies at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London, about her exciting book, Gender Hierarchy in the Quran, Medieval Interpretations, Modern Responses, published by Cambridge University Press, 2015. Thank you for listening.